Welcome to Landmark Worship Center's audio podcast. We hope that this message will inspire and encourage your life. So open your heart and mind and receive what God has for you today. things work together for good to them that love God to them who are called according to his purpose for whom he did foreknow he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren moreover whom he did predestinate them he also called them whom he called, he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. I'll draw your attention to uh, one or two things before you're seated. Uh, the scripture here says that we were called, past tense. And that's easy for us to comprehend. It says that we're justified, past tense which is a little bit less easy to comprehend. I don't always feel justified. And then I would like to draw your attention primarily to the word glorified. It's past tense as well. We have been glorified already. That is very difficult to conceptualize. And nevertheless, there it is. And I would like to, I would like to preach on, on that subject from this particular idea. We've been glorified. And my uh, title for this morning, which will become clearer as we go, is Till We Have Faces. Till We Have Faces. Would you pray with me? Thank you, Lord, for this Sunday morning and thank you for your many blessings. Thank you for the beautiful day in this Christmas season. Thank you for your holy word. Thank you for your prophets and apostles that taught us. I pray you would bless our time together. I pray that what I preach would be faithful to your word, that it would be glorifying to your name and edifying to your body. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And everyone said amen. amen. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. This morning I was teaching on the example uh, that God has set by manifesting himself as a son. And by doing so, he has taught us how to be a true son. And I would like to continue 
that essential idea. Um, the Apostle Paul uh, has a lot to say about imitation. In uh, 1 Corinthians, he asks the church to imitate him as he imitates Christ. In other places, he speaks of he speaks of another kind of imitation. For instance, he says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know you not that so many of us who are baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like, there it is, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. In other words, if we imitate him in his death, we will imitate him in his resurrection. In the passage that we read for our text, everything works together for good. I know that might surprise us, that is surprising to us given uh, what life tends to throw our way. How can this work for our good? And yet, there it is in the text, all things work together. There's nothing outside of that, uh, all-encompassing, all things work together for good. But there's a caveat. For those that love God and are called according to his purpose... And then he says that we were conformed, or predestined rather, to be conformed to the image of God's Son. Jesus is the image of God, and we are to be the image of Jesus. Conformed. He puts before our mind's eyes the idea of a mold. There's a certain mold we're to be conformed to. Our uh, culture doesn't really like discussions of conformity. In fact, conformity is probably a little bit of a bad word for us. We're, we're uh, 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 encouraged to follow our own hearts, to be unique, original. That's our culture's cry. Now, I don't know that our culture is necessar necessarily lives up to its kind of James Dean, uh, rebel without a cause kind of image that it wishes to project. In fact, we might be, our culture might be the most slavishly obedient culture there's ever been to certain fads and customs. We do conform ourselves, our culture does, to uh, uh, fads and uh, uh, forms of power. Uh, so regardless of our language, there's the idea of conformity in our culture. But scripture puts before us the idea that we're to be conformed to a certain image. We're not called to be unique. We're not called to be original. We're not called to be ourselves. Now, uh, uh, if you uh, remember your graduation ceremony, high school graduation. If you can go back that far, for some of you it's farther than others. And if you remember, I remember mine. 
I remember our valedictorian getting up there in front of us and giving a speech. And then the principal coming up right after. And they both basically said the same thing. And here it was. Set out a new path. Blaze a new path. Go places we've never been before. It's sort of like a Star Trek theme. And be original. Be unique. And then I remember our principal saying these words. Shakespeare said, to thine own self be true. To thine own self be true. It sounds really good. To thine own self be true. In other words, be true to who you are. Don't ever be a fake. That's, that's the message. What, what my uh, principal might not have known and others who quote that particular line as if it were wisdom, what they don't know is that Shakespeare put those words into the mouth of his most foolish character. Polonius in the play Hamlet who by the end of the play has lost a daughter to suicide and lost a son out of his own foolishness. To thine own self be true is the fool's motto. You tell a bunch of kids, be true to yourself. Kids don't even know who they are. They have no idea what they're being true to. In fact, there's just a void in here. As children, we have no idea who we are. We don't know what we're supposed to do. And there might not even really be a personality yet, at least a fully formed one. Um, in fact, that might be the most unhelpful advice you could ever give somebody is to yourself be true. Really, my true self, what I know of my true self, is not all that pleasant. And it depends on when you're talking to me, to yourself be true. Which is it? The me that gets up on Monday morning and that hates going where he needs to go and hates doing what he needs to do? The one that's constantly out there watching to make sure everybody is treating him appropriately? The one who barks at his family? The one who grustles and growls over all the good things in his life? Or the one, the one who, when he's feeling a little bit better, is just the most pleasant there can be. Which one am I supposed to be true to? And see, I have to make a choice. If you tell me, to thine own self be true, is it the good me or the bad me? There are probably different, 30 different me's. You've probably learned that a little bit about yourself. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what. A lot of the, lot of the uh, 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 criminals out there just being true to themselves. A lot of the people who are doing illegal things just being true to themselves. A lot of the people are hurting other people just being true to themselves. It's really unhelpful advice. I would say that we're born, again, with an absence of personality and that our personality is formed based on who we choose to imitate or what collection of imitations we choose over time. Uh, if you are to sit me down in front of a piano 
and say, just be true to who you are. It's going to be real bad. I'm not going to be able to make music. But then when the teacher comes alongside, seven, eight, nine-year-old me, and says, let me show you how to do it. And she sits down, and all of a sudden, out of this, out of this, this, this keyboard, which when I sit down, just makes noise. But when she sits down, out of that keyboard, like a, a sculptor chipping away at a marble rock, somehow out of that keyboard, she's able to create music out of it. And then she says, sit down. And I'll show you how. And she puts her hand over top of my hand. And then she says, here, let me show you how to do it. And I start imitating her. And the more I imitate the master, the more musical I become. And everything in life is that way. The first person I learned to imitate was my father. He set the standard for what was good in my life. He set the standard for what was normal. He was normal, and therefore I understood through him what was normal. He taught me how to deal with my family. He taught me how to treat work. He taught me how to grow up. He taught me what was mature. He taught me the appropriate way to talk and the inappropriate way to talk. He taught me all of those kinds of things. And I wanted to be like him more than just about anything. Imitation. Um, I'm talking here a, a little bit about masks. Masks. When we talk about masks, we might think of uh, what we wear to hide ourselves. But I'm using a different kind of idea of mask. We put on a mask, and that mask is a kind of uh, form of imitation. It's an invitation to an imitation. You put it on, um, and the mask transforms us. Masks can come in many different forms. Sometimes masks, the mask we wear, is technology, social media, vehicles. And what I mean by that is if we sit down in, in, a, in an anonymous place behind an anonymous computer and get on social media and start commenting on some YouTube video, when we have that anonymity, we wear that mask where no one knows who we are, some of the ugliest things might come out of us. Check any YouTube channel. Look at the comments section. Look what happens on Twitter when you don't have the uh, uh, you don't have an identity. Facebook, when you're hiding behind a mask. Uh, the uh, ancient or not ancient the uh, uh, Victorian uh, British comedian Oscar Wilde uh, once said that if you really want to know who a man is, watch him when he chooses his mask. That's when you'll find out who the man is. When we sit down in a vehicle and go driving and our identity is now our license plate, our car make and model, and that's it. And we're driving on a highway out of state where no one could possibly know us. We might be tempted to do things we would never otherwise do. If we were standing in person, it's very unlikely that if we're really mad, we would give them a hand signal. Very unlikely. There are consequences for that kind of thing. But when we're wearing that mask, maybe, maybe there's a little truth coming out there. Technology is a kind of mask. It can be. 
Um, masks are powerful, a powerful form of uh, powerful form of uh, psychology, really. Uh, uh, in the early 1900s, there was a playwright, uh, a Russian uh, th a theatrical playwright, Konstantinus Stanislavsky. And he invented and coined the term uh, method acting. And his idea was, before him, the theater that he inherited was, the idea was the actors would become um, the part they play by putting on a certain... Um, uh, costume. So you would know you were, you were looking up there at Julius Caesar, an imitation of Julius Caesar, because he was wearing a laurel wreath and a toga and sandals. But that was basically it. And he was given certain lines and he would try to deliver those lines, but your only uh, intuition that this is Julius Caesar is to look at the costume. But Stanislavski said, no, 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 no. If you're going to play on my stage and you're going to play the part of Julius Caesar, you're not just going to be known as Julius Caesar through the costume that you wear, but by the way you deliver your lines and how deeply you enter into the part you're playing. So drop your own identity Lose who you are. Who you are is not important on the stage. We want you not merely to be a costume of Julius Caesar, but to deeply, deeply become Julius Caesar to the point that you're, that you're thinking like Julius Caesar. You're emoting like Julius Caesar. You're trying to have the emotions of the part you're playing. So you don't just be Julius Caesar when you're on stage, but you're Julius Caesar when you're off stage. Method acting. Uh, Stanislavski went so far as to forbid any of his actors from ever writing a biography of themselves or giving a personal interview because who you are is not important. What's important is the part you play. Um, method acting is popular, has been popular in Hollywood for the last uh, 50, 60 years or so. Sometimes an actor can get lost, deeply lost in the part that he plays or she plays. Um, oftentimes with tragic consequences. About 20 years ago now, uh, a, a young and promising actor by the name of Heath Ledger was given a part to play. Now, before this uh, uh, part, he was uh, on the ascent. He was a very popular actor, <clears throat> very promising, very good-natured young man. And then he's given the part to play Somehow Christopher Nolan, the director, saw in this young man something that he could, that he could uh, leverage into the part of the Joker. But his Joker wasn't going to be like a Jack Nicholson Joker, who was more of a trickster. It wasn't going to be like a Cesar Romero, a laughing Joker, the kind of Joker that you would only assume he's a Joker by the smile that he paints on his face. No, this is the kind of Joker who would cut a smile into his face. This is the kind of Joker who doesn't want to be rich, doesn't want to be wealthy, doesn't want to be famous. He only wants one thing. He wants to see the world burn down. So play that part, young man. And play the part he did. He lost himself in the part. 
He quit being Heath Ledger. It wasn't just when the, the cameras were on, when the lights were on, and when the crew said, action. But when they closed up the cameras and closed down the stage, and he went off stage, he disappeared into the part. He would think and act like this kind of joker who wants to see the world burn. What would this kind of joker dream like? What would it be like to have a meal with this kind of joker? What kinds of conversations would he have with his family? And those who loved him, again, saw him tragically withdrawing and this evil character taking his place. And by the time he was done, he had completely lost himself and committed suicide before the film was ever released. People get lost. They can get lost in the parts they play. On the other side, on the other side, uh, around the same time, a little bit earlier in fact, there was the uh, uh, film The Passion of Christ. And an actor, a, a young and up-and-coming actor who had played in some major uh, uh, films, Jim Caviezel was asked to play the part of Jesus. But Mel Gibson, the director, said, no, we're not just going to have we're not just going to have blue-eyed, blonde-haired Jesus speaking in English and in very serious tones delivering the Sermon on the Mount. You're not just going to be Jesus by wearing a toga, a robe, and wearing a crown of thorns and hanging on a cross by a rope. No. We want you not to say, speak a single word of English. You're going to speak in Jesus' own native tongue. His native tongue was Aramaic. We need you to learn Aramaic. And we want you to be a method actor. So we want you to enter deeply into the part of who Jesus is. What would it be like to sit down and have a meal with this Jesus? And we want you to eat the way Jesus would eat. To talk the way Jesus would talk. To relate to family and friends and enemies the way Jesus would relate to them. We want, you, we want you to stop even thinking in English. We want you to think in Aramaic. And so Caviezel, off screen, learned Aramaic and thought in Aramaic and conversed exclusively in Aramaic most of the time. And then when the day came for them to film the crucifixion, it was only about 28, 29 degrees outside. And they were going to have 10 hours of shooting that day. And uh, uh, he had to be up on the cross with just a loincloth, and that's it. And so most actors who would play that part, even on warmer days, while the camera's not on, they would ask, cover, they would, they would say, cover up the actor and make sure he stays warm up there. We don't want him to have to come down. Make him comfortable while he's up there. But Caviezel said, no, no, no. And he stayed up there and he shivered. His lips turned blue. He developed hypothermia. But he was committed to have some kind of suffering like Jesus had if he was going to play the part of Jesus. He was not going to leave the suffering out. For what is an unsuffering Jesus? We played the part extremely well.
and it completely changed who he was. Afterwards, people hated him. Directors no longer hired him. He hasn't played in a single major motion picture since. He hasn't been asked to. Not that he would have taken many of them. Because once you start really acting like Jesus, it's really hard to do many of the things you used to do. For a while, you're playing a part. But watch out, for the part's going to start playing you. You become the part you play. And that's human nature. That's the way it works. When I was a young man, I thought I was going to become an adult, and then I would know everything like adults know. I thought I would be competent. I would have answers to deep questions. I didn't think I would have any more empty spaces in my mind where all I could say was, I don't know. And I certainly didn't think there was ever going to be a time where a child would ask me a question, a deep question, and I'm an adult, and I, I would have to try and come up with the answer somewhere else outside my mind. I never thought it was possible. I thought, I thought that when I stepped across the threshold from being a child to being an adult... I would no longer be faced with the temptations of children. I would no longer say stupid things. I would no longer have stupid and ignorant thoughts. And then I turned 18 when it was supposed to happen. And I was just as ignorant as ever. And I thought, well, maybe it's 20 because 20 is different than 19. It doesn't have teen in it anymore. I became 20. It didn't happen. I thought, well, maybe it's when I get married. I say I do. And all the immaturity ends. Oh, our wives could say otherwise. Oh, yeah. Oh, can't they ever. Yes. No, that's when some of the foolishness begins. And I found out, I found out with all of the ignorance that I was dealing with. The questions only got deeper. And I found really that knowledge is like a series of concentric circles. And that as, as the sphere of knowing enlarges, its contact with the unknown gets larger. And I was as ignorant as ever. And now I have a son. And then another son. And then a daughter. And these people, these creatures, are calling me dad and asking me the questions I don't know the answers to. They want me, they believe me to be father. They see a halo over my head. They think maybe tucked behind my shoulder blades are angels' wings. I'm right next to God in their eyes. And what am I to give them? To thine own self be true? Oh my God, no. Not if I love them. The last thing I want to give them is me. I have to give them something better than that. 
I was conceived in sin and shapen in iniquity. The heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? To mine own self be true? Is that what I give my kids? No. No. See, when Sunday comes, and I'm tired, and today's football, I want to get up from my bed at 10 o'clock when I'm done sleeping and throw on my pajamas, go sit down on a couch and turn on a game and watch it and let the whole world go to Sunday school. But I'm going to be true to me. Follow my heart. And then the kids who are dressed by their mother suits and ties and dresses and they look pleading it, pleadingly at me are you coming? no to mine own self be true I sit there and the day goes by Monday I don't really feel like working too much but I do I go to work but then Monday is softball evening not time with the kids not coming home, I'm going to go play softball. In fact, I'll sign up for two, three, four leagues so I can be playing almost every night of the week. So my life can be practically sleeping, eating, watching football, playing sports. That's me. To thine own self be true. Meanwhile, the kids watch. They watch. And see, I have a choice. Do I be me? Or do I be conformed to the image of God's Son? Do I do the hard work? Do the thing that my body wasn't, doesn't want to do? So that I can give them something, something more of a father than I just, just my, than just my body. Can I really be dad to them? I was working at Burger King at the time as a manager in my earliest 20s. I was deeply ashamed of it. I shouldn't have been, but I was at the time. I had visions of being a, a something great, maybe, maybe being a, a great baseball player or maybe an umpire in, in, in sports or maybe, maybe and this is the conversation I had with my future father-in-law, be a pilot, fighter pilot. He asked me the first time we met, what are you going to do for a living? What do you want to do? I remember we were sitting at Spaghetti Factory. I looked at him and said, fighter pilot. Yeah. That's what I wanted him to believe. That's what I wanted to believe about myself. But here I was in my early 20s. And my day consisted of asking people if they wanted to go large or if they wanted ketchup. <laughs> Handing out their orders through a drive-thru. I learned more at Burger King than I learned in all of my college experience. Learned way more there. And I should have been more thankful at the time. But at the time, I was deeply ashamed. I felt like I was in a rut and I was never going to get out. I was never going to provide for my family. I was never, ever going to be able to pay for a mortgage. I had three kids working in Burger King. 
boy, when I got to be home, we'd go to the park sometimes before work, and I had the evening shift. And I would put on that uniform, and then go, we'd go to the park and go play for a little while, put the kids on the swing, and then it came 2.15. It's time for me to go to work. And so we'd all get into the car, and they'd drop me off at work, and, and my uh, coach turned back into a pumpkin. And I got in behind the counter at Burger King and started taking orders. What am I giving to my kids? And the day came. This is another Father's Day story. Father's Day. 2002. The mothers had organized an event, a special event for the fathers. They, of course, didn't tell the fathers what was going on as usual. And they said, we're going to have all the boys dress up like their dads in whatever their dad does for a living. And they're going to come up the middle aisle and they're going to come up on the platform and show off what their dad does. Now, I didn't know this was going on and I was sitting right back there. And I said, we're going to have a very special presentation for the fathers. It's Father's Day. Children, come on up. And one by one, the kids started coming up. One strolls up in his dad's, something like his dad's business suit. Another one is like wearing a security outfit. Another one, construction. And it dawned on me what was happening. And I realized, oh my heavens, they're about, my, my son's going to have to come up in a Burger King uniform. I wanted to sink down beneath the pews. I wanted to find a hole in the floor. This is the last thing I wanted to do. They were kind of uh, wanting to celebrate something that wasn't worth celebrating, something to be ashamed of. That was my, that was my, those were my thoughts anyway. And my son, Ethan, who was just five years old, I saw him there at the tail end of the parade. Oh, oh, I looked at him with one eye and he was wearing my very uniform he was wearing my red short sleeve polo shirt it was way too big for him it was draped on him like a coat and he was wearing my actual black pants rolled up to the knees and he came up there and he wasn't ashamed he was as proud as could be. And he gave the whole congregation the greatest smile. And he had one final touch that was his very own. He wanted to be even more dad than his dad. So he wore something that his dad never wore. A Burger King crown. And he insisted on wearing it up there. And he stood there in front of everybody. And you would think that standing amongst all the professionals, he would want to hide behind one of them somewhere, but he didn't. He came as close to the edge of the stage as he possibly could. You know why? Because in my child's eyes, there was nothing like dad. And you know what dad does? 
When people come to Burger King, they're hungry. When they leave, they're full. When they come to Burger King, they might be sad. But when they leave Burger King, they're happy. They get ice cream, they get fries, they get Whoppers. They get, the kids get Happy Meals. Dad's like Santa Claus. There's no dad in the world like my dad. That's what he was standing up there telling everybody. I've thought about that a lot. A lot. And I can only imagine when God looks out upon us from heaven and sees us wearing his very own clothes, playing his part, trying to be like their dad in heaven, forgiving the unforgivable, loving the unlovable, having mercy upon the merciless, being long-suffering towards the people that hurt us and persecute. We're wearing his clothes. We have on his uniform. We're playing his part. We have been predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. We are being asked to put on a mask. We don't have our own identity yet. That's to be determined by the choices of our imitation. Who we choose to imitate. Should we choose to imitate the lowly, the unworthy? Is this what God has given us as our lot? No. But the highest and the most exalted... How much God must love us to ask us to be conformed to the image of the holiest and the highest. Conformed to the image of his son. And should we imitate him, dying daily to our own needs and wishes and wants, and taking up something higher, if we die daily, if we're buried with him, we shall, when the trumpet sounds, be resurrected like him, like he was out of that tomb. There was a day uh, in the 1940s when a, uh, the Germans caught a pickpocket red-handed, an Italian. And they told him, uh, we're going to uh, put you in prison forever unless you do what we ask you to do. Okay, what do you want me to do? They said, we want you to play a part. General Della Rovere, it's going to be your name. You're going to learn his identity. You're going to talk like he talked. You're going to wear the kinds of clothes he wore. You're going to have his, his identity through and through. We want you to learn it, memorize it, and we're going to put you into the prison system and you're going to learn the movements of the Italian resistance because they're going to trust you. You're one of them. So they think. And then you come back, we'll take you out of prison and you tell us all that you learned about the Italian resistance, all their whereabouts, everything they know. He said, very well. And so they put the career pickpocket in prison but they dressed him up like a general. And they gave him a dignified air. They taught him how to speak. 
he adapted very, very well. And after a little while, the people in prison, part of the Italian resistance, learned to respect him. Mothers would say to their children who were in the prison system too, come, I know this is sad. I know it seems like this is never going to end, but let me show you General Della Rovere. He gives us strength every day. And so the prison system, the Italian resistance movement, learned to love General Della Rovere, and they, they, they found him to be an inspiration, a, a reason to keep on keeping on, keeping on and, and to keep their secrets to themselves, that one day everything would be better. If he, General Della Rovere, can be silent, if he can put up with the suffering, so can we. And so they, 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 they bore with it. And the time came, months had passed, and they pulled, the Germans pulled the prisoner out, the pickpocket. They sat him down at a table and they said, okay, tell us everything you know. And they slid pen and paper across the table and said, write down names, dates, places, times. And the pickpocket looked at the paper. And then he looked back up at the Germans and then folded his arms. The decision to thine own self be true. I'm a pickpocket. But I've been wearing a mask, playing a part. Pickpocket or General Della Rovere? And then he slid the paper across the table empty. And somebody, one of the Germans, cocked his pistol. pistol. Said, you have to the count of three to begin writing. And he slid the paper across the desk again. Eins. Bye. And the pickpocket said, as he opened his teeth just a fraction of an inch, Long live Italia. His head fell on the desk. He was the face of the resistance. His side won. In the end, imitation's a powerful thing. It can completely transform who you are. You might be saying to yourself, I can't be goody two-shoes like everybody else. I don't even want to go to church anymore. I have to act like I'm, I'm good, like I'm this good Christian person, but really, I have all these struggles inside. Do you understand? I'm trying to tell you. It's not true of who you are right now. Of course not. Of course you're still, still, still in the process Still, you, you, you have so much about you that needs fixed. Yes, but put on the mask. Play the part. I know it's not exactly who you are, but remember, you were justified and you were glorified already. It's not you that was justified and glorified so much as the part you're playing. So play that part. And guess what? Monday comes and you act like Jesus. When the enemy comes against you, you act like Jesus. When you're disappointed, you get disappointed like Jesus. When you get hurt, you get hurt like Jesus. 
You say the things that Jesus said. You put up with what Jesus put up with. And over time, a transition will start to take place where it will become more who you actually are. You will start to change who you are based on the part you're playing. You keep on playing it enough, and pretty soon it will not any longer be a fiction and just a mask, but it will be really who you are. You are predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son. You might say, well, that sounds like you're asking me to play a part. Is that kind of like hypocrisy? No. No. The hypocrite plays a part but has no intention of becoming good. But those of us who put on the mask of the Son of God, we say, I'm incomplete on my own, but I can be transformed. And Paul said, put on Christ. He said, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Put on the mask. And the day comes. And we stand before the Lord in glory. And striding out of the light will be the Lord Jesus Christ and he will stand before you. And up until this time, we've played a part. There's really no identity underneath. We have no face of our own. But Jesus stands before us, takes off our mask, and underneath, he will see a reflection of his own face in yours. For the mask will have made you and given you his face. Beloved, we are all God's children now. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But when we see him, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope within himself purifies himself even as he is pure. How about it? Would you stand? Dad and mom, who are you going to give your kids? Give them the son of God. It's the greatest gift you could possibly ever give anyone is to become like the Son of God. I would go further to say, it is your duty, your calling, and your greatest possible outcome. For in the imitation of Christ, all things will be made new. strengthen your people and to this calling may they ascend O oh God who art more ready to hear than we are 
to pray, more ready to give than we are to ask. Help us. Help the men who are becoming fathers. Their children have given them a mask called dad. May they wear it and wear it faithfully. And you have given us the mask of the Son of God. May I wear it faithfully every day until I have disappeared and taken your identity. Until we all become fully and truly sons of God. Encourage your people in Jesus' name. Before you go home today, I think it would be a good idea to come and pray. Up here somewhere is a mask, the mask of the Son of God. Take it up and wear it. Put on Christ. Put on Christ. Put on Christ. Put on Christ.